Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, last month the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation named its class of Genius Grant Fellows, 25 recipients across academia, the arts, and sciences, all of whom have demonstrated outstanding talent in their fields. In our series, The Genius Next Door, we're gathering three of the awardees who work and teach here in Massachusetts. Later in the show, it's lights, love, latkes, and a matzo ball. Hanukkah romances offer a different holiday story. Hanukkah is a minor religious holiday, but it's become in a lot of ways a holiday of American cultural identity. The Festival of Lights is the backdrop for two recent romance novels, Love and Latkes and the Matzo Ball, are our selections for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me remotely, Dana Friedman, chemistry professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and an associate editor for the Journal of the American Chemical Society. Welcome, Dana. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I'm so happy to have you. Also with me, Melanie Matchett-Wood, mathematics professor at Harvard University studying pure math and number theory. Hi, Melanie. Hello, Callie. It's great to be talking to you. And Loretta Ross, a reproductive justice and human rights activist, as well as a professor at Smith College. Thanks for joining us, Loretta. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, I am thrilled because I have been doing the Genius Next Door series for several years, and this is the first time where all of the local winners have been women. So this is the first, first, and I'm just excited about the conversation. I want to start off with uh, talking with each of you about your work, which brought you to the attention of the MacArthur Foundation nominees, or nomin nominators, I should say. So, Dana, let me start with you. Um, you're a synthetic inorganic chemist. Uh, what does that mean, and what are you doing that uh, is so exciting right now? That's a great question. So fundamentally, that means we make things. Uh, we make uh, molecules and materials that are comprised of pretty much every element on the periodic table. Inorganic chemistry deals with the um, electronic structure, reactivity, bonding, um, every aspect of elements outside of, well, fundamentally carbon-based things. So what we do is we ask questions, and many of those questions have been traditionally found in the domain of physics, um, such as understanding magnetism, creating systems for quantum information science. We So we ask a question, and then we build a system. Uh, but instead of building it with magnetiles, we build it with chemical bonds. And we uh, create a system that can answer our question or add functionality. Hmm. Um, so 
I was reading it. You said 100 years ago there was the first quantum revolution, and now we're in the second, and that's the one that you're working in at this moment. Yeah, that's uh, exactly right. It's really a tremendous time. So in the first quantum revolution, fundamentally, scientists discovered the quantum nature of the universe. They observed quantum properties. And in the ensuing 100 years, we've moved from observation to control. And it's this idea of being able to control this mysterious quantum nature of the universe that has created this giant playground of the field of quantum information science. Okay. So I want my listeners to get a sense of, of each of you as, as we'll go along um, out in the real world, out in the field. So here you are giving a talk on chemistry for the second quantum revolutions in 2020. A molecular approach is important because in this molecule, you have precise control over the distance between every one of your qubits. This level of sub-angstrom control is unique to molecular chemistry. You don't get this level of spatial precision in superconducting qubits. You don't get this level of spatial precision in pretty much anything. Not only can you control every aspect about your individual qubits, but you can control all of their separations. And that's something really powerful. Um, I find it so exciting to hear how excited you are. So that makes me excited, even if I don't quite (laughs) grasp what you're doing. (laughs) Um, So I want you, uh, before I move on to um, our other guests, to go back in time and answer when it was that you got excited about this kind of work, this science? What what was the thing that triggered your interest that has now carried you to this point? You know, when I was a graduate student, I saw many different glimpses of the words molecule and quantum tied together with different properties. And there are really elegant examples of, for example, um, observing strange quantum properties like quantum tunneling of magnetization in a molecule. But what was really an under-designed idea was taking molecules and using them for quantum information science, using them to specifically control quantum superpositions. And there's a lot of data but maybe less intention. And realizing this wide open space and this possibility was really tremendous to me because having a new opportunity to design inorganic molecules is very exciting. Okay. That's my guest, Dana Friedman. She's a chemistry professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a member of the 2022 MacArthur Fellows class. Moving over to you, Loretta Ross. Um, You are a reproductive justice and human rights activist, um, and you have been one uh, for quite some time. Um, Please tell us about your work as you see it. I believe I won the award because in 1994, I co-created the theory of reproductive justice as a answer for what Black women needed from the reproductive politics of the day that seemed to be stuck on the pro-choice, pro-life binary. We created it because we wanted to articulate what we wanted, and it turned out to be a paradigm shift that ended up shifting the entire conversation around reproductive politics. And in the decades since then has come to dominate how people see reproductive politics through the human rights lens that we insist that people use. 
You also co-founded Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective, which brought together a lot of reproductive justice organizations. And I, I, let, let me go back and say you were one of 12 women to create the term reproductive justice, just so everybody is clear about how long you've been in this work and um, how much you've contributed uh, to its advancement. Yes, Sister Song was founded three years later in 1997. And we decided to use reproductive justice as our organizing framework to see if we could build a collective movement of women of color who wanted to work on reproductive politics. And it turned out to be tremendously popular. And as I said, paradigm shifting, because historically people are trying to argue for reproductive freedom under the very limited US constitutional framework. And as we saw with the reversal of the Roe v. Wade decision, through Dobbs this past summer by the Supreme Court, that that's not a sturdy enough platform on which to rest women's human rights. And so we prefer to use the global human rights framework so that we can talk about what every human being is entitled to in terms of bodily autonomy, managing their family, making sure they can provide their for their families and raise them in safe and healthy environments. And Reproductive justice basically has those three tenets, the right to have a child, the right not to have a child, and the right to raise your children in safe and healthy environments. And I think its capaciousness is why it's become so popular, because everything that we need in terms of living a life of human dignity is contained in the human rights framework expressed through reproductive justice. Yes, and in fact, you've said you want you are invested in making people see their entire world through a human rights framework. And um, to that end, you're known for this body of work and this activism around reproductive justice. But uh, more, more recently, you've become known um, as the creator of something called Calling In, which is a direct response to what people may know as call-out culture, a.k.a. cancel culture. Uh, and so you've been doing a lot of talking about that, a lot of working with people to think about um, cancel culture and how it may impact folks. Again, I want my listeners to hear you in the field. So here you are in your TED Talk in 2021 talking about how to call in as opposed to call out. And basically, a call in is a call out done with love. So when you think somebody has done something wrong and you want to hold them accountable, you don't react with anger or hate. You just remain calm and look at them and say, and you can do this online and in person too. Forget that part. But you just look at them calmly and you tell them, that's an interesting viewpoint. Tell me more. With that, you've invited them into a conversation instead of a fight. And you don't have to agree with somebody to offer them loving attention. All you're admitting at that moment is that there's a possibility that they're as complicated as you are. Loretta Ross, you've really started a conversation about around call-in, but that's part of what brought you to the attention of the MacArthur uh, Foundation uh, for the entire body of your work, including this uh, vision as you are creating it now. Now, same question to you that I asked uh, Dana Friedman. Can you go back in time and think about 
one or two things that got you interested in activism um, and then therefore led you to all the other parts of your life now to the professorship at Smith College? Well, I really relate to that uh, comment because when I first went to college, I majored in chemistry and physics and wanted to get into uh, inorganic research, but my plumbing got in the way. I was a victim of incest and ended up having a baby because of that incest because that was before abortion was legalized in 1968 was when I became pregnant. And so I ended up parenting a child born of rape and incest. And then a few years later had an abortion because my mother wouldn't sign the permission slip for me to get one since I was still under age. And then a few years after that, was sterilized by a defective Dalcon shield. And so I finally paid attention to what my plumbing was trying to tell me, that I needed to work on all of these feminist issues that had such a strong and definite impact on my life. And so I made the decision in my mid-20s to become a full-time activist, and I've never regretted it since, though I do wish I had stuck with the chemistry stuff a little bit longer because I'm still a, a, a science nerd. Wow. Um, I just want to want to acknowledge that that was, a, that was intense. And um, uh, we appreciate your sharing that with us, sharing your life's um, impact with us. Um, so that was my guest, Loretta Ross. She's a reproductive justice and human rights activist, as well as a professor at Smith College. Melanie Matchett-Wood. Um, you're up next. You're a mathematics professor at Harvard University studying pure math and number theory. Um, tell me about your work. Okay, well, so number theory starts with the whole numbers. So the one, two, three, four, five, so the most basic um, number system that we work with and tries to understand it from its very foundations. Um, in these foundations, one of the key building blocks are the prime numbers. Um, number theorists try to, to understand the patterns in, in prime numbers and how they combine uh, in to larger you know, composite numbers, which is what we call numbers that aren't prime. Um, and in particular, my research is about what happens when we make small adjustments to the system of numbers that we consider um, when we don't say just use the whole numbers, but we use some other number like the square root of two, which we know isn't one of these whole numbers. It's some number between one and two. Um, and when we, when we do that, uh, what happens to the primes? So those are the kinds of questions I try to understand. So I was taken with um, reading about you and um, learning that this is called uh, creative mathematics, so that you have a lot of space to uh, consider, you know, what the possibilities could be. And I was also taken with your say, saying that you mostly try things that don't end up working. It's just like a puzzle, you said. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, if you learn math in school, you probably learned a sequence of steps, say, that would let you solve a particular problem. And then you might have done a lot of practicing using that sequence of steps to solve the problem. But what math research is, is it's finding a sequence of steps to solve a problem for which no one knows any sequence of steps to solve it. 
So let's uh, give my listeners a chance to hear you out in the world. Here you are lecturing on probability theory earlier this year. So these are distributions of groups that arise in number theory and related and analogous contexts. So one example is as k varies over some collection of number fields, what is the distribution of the class group of k? So for each number field k, the class group of k is some finite abelian group. We know what all the finite abelian groups look like. Um, and in particular, it's one that is of a lot of interest to number theorists because it controls the factorization in the algebraic integers of k. And we could just say, if, if we take a random k or k from some distribution, what distribution of finite abelian groups do we get? You know, how often do we get z mod 3 cross z mod 16? That's one of the finite abelian groups, and you might wonder how often you get that one, et cetera. So, Melanie, I have to say, um, math challenged as I am, of course, if I had you as a teacher, I think it might have been different. I actually kind of understood what you were saying there, which is really a tribute to you. Um, I, I'm like, wow, okay, I get this. I can't do it, but I get what she's saying and where she's going. So I do want to give you that tribute. Um, and now I want to go back to the question I'm asking each of you. Um, what prompted your early interest in math? The first time I really felt like math was something special was when I was in seventh grade and participated in this competition called Math Counts. And that's because that was the first time I was asked to do something besides just apply a sequence of steps I had been taught to solve a problem. You know, so in this math competition, there were problems where I hadn't been taught how to solve that particular problem. I just had to use what I know and put it together. And that was the first, the first uh, teaser of, of this kind of math that I do now where someone hasn't handed you the playbook, but you have to write the playbook. I didn't even realize until I was in college that you could have a job where you try to solve math problems that no one knows the answer to. <laughs> so if you'd asked me in high school what I wanted to be when I grew up, I, I think, you know, I said I wanted to be a physicist or a cognitive scientist or just simply because I didn't know that math research was, was something that people did. There you go. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are chemist Dana Friedman, mathematician Melanie Matchett-Wood, and activist and writer Loretta Ross. All three are local members of the 2022 class of MacArthur Genius Fellows, part of our series, The Genius Next Door. So here's the question that a lot of listeners will have. How does all each of you, I'm each of you, I want you to answer this question. How does your work impact our everyday lives or does it? Dana, back to you. And actually, I, I just want to say that, um, you know, my work would not be possible without activists like Loretta. That's incredibly important. Okay. So why is my work important to anyone? Um I think that there are two directions where uh, this work can matter. One is quantum information science, broadly speaking, has the ability to uh, impact society across a range of disciplines. The area which is closest to my own research is the area of quantum sensing. Quantum information science, broadly speaking, can create a wide toolkit of applications. The other area where my work is important, um, which is 
possibly much more important is creating a new foundation, not just my work, um, creating a new foundation for people to think about. In particular, you know, training this so-called quantum workforce, helping students expand the way that they approach science and training the next generation of scientists to think in a more interdisciplinary way. Okay. Loretta, same question to you. Um, it's pretty clear the direct application of my work onto society because we've changed how we discuss all reproductive politics, whether we're talking about the biological processes of how people can control their fertility and what human rights they have to manage that, but also the non-biological issues of tax policies and school to prison pipelines and gun violence in our schools and environmental issues. All of these fields of human endeavor affect reproductive politics and are affected by reproductive politics. So I had the gratification of witnessing how a framework that we conceptualized in 1994 had an immediate application when it came to how people were now demanding the full range of human rights protections to which they were entitled, because previously we only described these issues as women's rights issues, not as human rights issues. And further proof was provided when the LGBTQ movement started using reproductive justice as part of their claim for full acceptance and human dignity. And so it continues to march from the margins to the center, even ending up in documents and briefings by the White House and things like that. So. Mm. Melanie Matchett-Wood? Yes. So on the one hand, I study things like, like prime numbers, which seem to be very pure and abstract uh, and out of our day-to-day -day life for most of us. But actually, every time you log on to your email or your bank account or buy something online, it's in your credit card number, all the encryption algorithms that are keeping our digital information safe are based on the mathematical properties of prime numbers. And these aren't mathematical properties of prime numbers that we just discovered, you know, since we needed computers or encryption, but in fact, they were things that mathematicians have been studying for a long time because they're questions about the foundations of our number system. The history of mathematics teaches us that by studying the fundamental structures in mathematics, we will have the tools that we need um, to develop technology that we need in the future. So that just uh, reminds me to emphasize in this conversation that when Mac the MacArthur nominators, all anonymous, this is an anom uh, anonymous process, uh, bring forth names uh, like all of you, it's not only for the work you are currently doing, but for the potential of where that work could go. Um, and essentially, they're placing a bet that um, whatever you do, because of what you've already done, will lead to some um, certainly exciting, but certainly some 
um, everyday way in which we'll be using it now and later. So I, I wanted to uh, just make that clear so people understand the whole purpose of the MacArthur is to recognize not just the now, but the potential for the future. And that leads me to um, talking about the 1,061 people who have been named MacArthur Fellows uh, over the years since 1981. They usually choose about 20 to 30 each year. It's an anonymous process. And uh, they've upped the money. Uh, there's a no-strings-attached award, monetary award. Uh, it's $800,000 for each of you. And in the past, it's been $625,000. Uh, great uh, for you to do whatever you wish to do. But before I find out from you what you're going to do with it, I always like to ask and uh, each of you how you found out. And let me just begin by saying um, that I have never interviewed a fellow who wasn't just so into their work that they are absolutely stunned um, when they are tapped to be named to a MacArthur class. And I think the same uh, applies this year. So let me start with you, Dana. Where were you? Were you shocked uh, to be selected? I was completely shocked uh, to be selected. I um, So I got a phone call from a Chicago number while I was in a meeting with my graduate students. And of course, I didn't answer it. Um, and that was followed up with an email from the MacArthur Foundation asking if I was available for a um, last minute final assessment of a candidate that I was familiar with. Um, and I was like, oh, sure. I wonder who I know, like, I wonder which of my friends or colleagues won this award. And I started trying to guess who it could be. I, I was so excited for the person uh, who wasn't me. <laughs> Um, and I, I even, I have a, a good friend from grad school who's a mathematician and I texted her the, uh, content of the email. And I was like, who do you think it is? Is it someone that we went to grad school with? What do you think? And she writes back in her very adorable mathematician way. I think there's a 30% chance that it's you. <laughs> 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 So I was actually walking across MIT's campus, um, bringing cookies from flour to my students, uh, bribery, when I um, got the phone call. And not only was I completely fabricated, I was that I think the second thing they said is you can't tell anyone. And so I'm standing in the middle of MIT's campus trying to respond to this um, and thinking, okay, what are the words that I can use to say how completely overwhelmed I am by this absolutely absurd honor that I cannot conceive of. <laughs> That's Dana Friedman. She's a synthetic inorganic chemist. Um, Loretta Ross, were you shocked? Not only was I shocked, I was rude <laughs> because I was driving on the freeway and a call came in from a woman saying she was with the MacArthur Foundation. And I immediately assumed that she was calling me for a job reference for a friend who possibly was applying for a job at the foundation. So I was rude. I said, listen, I don't talk while I drive. So you're going to have to call me back after my class. <laughs> and she said, well, what time? And I said, 4.15 and hung up on her. And so when they called back at 4.15, there were some students still hanging around. She said, uh, are you alone? I said, well, I can be. So I shooed them out of the room and 
asked the last one to shut the door. And that's when she told me that I had received the award. And at first, I thought I was getting punked. <laughs> I believe it. But there was a, like a group of people on this call. It wasn't just one person. So eventually, I believed it. And then the worst part, which I'm sure my fellow awardees got the news of, is that we were only allowed to tell one other person. Mm -hmm. That must have been hard. sit on the news for a month. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, that was the hardest secret to keep in the world. I had to explain to all, I couldn't explain to all the people around me why I suddenly lost my mind. So, <laughs> okay. so that was my story. Uh, that's Loretta Ross. <laughs> She's uh, an activist and scholar. Um, all right, Melanie Matchett Wood, where were you? Well, I hadn't even noticed that I had missed about six calls from some Chicago number that day because I have very busy days and don't pay attention to to, to calls from numbers that, that I don't know. Um, but I did, towards the end of the day, get an email, you know, asking to, to set up a call. Finally, I'm at home and I am almost done with the day. I have the kids in bed and just have this one more work call I have to do and then I'll get to put my feet up. Um, and then of course I was completely shocked uh, that this was uh, such such exciting, exciting news. Um, and what, <laughs> what a way to end a busy day. Uh, it, it had never occurred to me that that it would be a possibility that that I would get MacArthur and are just completely overwhelmed and so, so honored to be in the company of so many um, amazing people. Uh, that's Melanie Matchett Wood, a mathematician. Now, I'll start with you, Melanie, and go the reverse way. Um, how do you think you want to use the money? You can do whatever you wish. You could just sit there with it and think a deep thought if you wanted to. They don't care. When I first started getting this question uh, when they announced the award. I was thinking about things that were a little bit outside of the box, like having research workshops in a different kind of format where I bring people together that don't usually talk to each other. And I think that those could be useful, but we've still got some time before they actually send us the money. And I've been, been starting um, to brainstorm of ideas that uh, that might you know that might might be be a little farther. So so I can't I can't tell you you know specific plans yet. But I think part of the the spirit of this award is to let us try to to do something that we wouldn't have been able to dream of otherwise. And I'm excited to think about what that might mean for me. Mm -hmm. Loretta Ross, what about you? Well, I'm maybe one of the oldest awardees in this class because I'm approaching 70 years old and I don't have a lot of new things I want to do in my life. I was lucky enough to have been on the ground floor of the movement to end violence against women, reproductive justice, anti-fascism, and now calling in the calling out culture. So my use of the award is going to be extremely pragmatic. I'm going to self-finance my long-term care plan in case I end up in a nursing home or need at-home health care, because when you're 
a senior citizen like I am, that becomes very, very important. So I don't have anything sexy to do with it. But I did tell myself that this is the fourth time someone has written me a six-figure check and the first time I'm using it on myself. <laughs> so I'm not going to give it away to a nonprofit like I've done with the last three big checks. Well, that's you enjoy. And Dana Friedman, how will you do? Use your money. You know, I think I'm very much in a similar boat to Melanie thinking about this. So I, in the sciences, there are a lot of opportunities um, to get funding for things that are um, straightforward extensions of research, right? Research grants to fund students, conference uh, grants to create a new conference, Um and so I I completely agree that thinking about the best use of this has merit. And, you know, if there's anything that I could want for money to advance science, it's more time to think. And there's a there's a lot of time here. And I think that there's no pressure to spend the money immediately. Well, congratulations to all three of you. Um, I'm always excited to talk to the MacArthur Fellows because you all are very excited about what you've been doing and you were doing it, certainly not ever thinking that you would be in this uh, special group of folks, but you are. Um, and, um, and so I'm all proud of you because you're from this area. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Dana Friedman is a chemistry professor at MIT and an associate editor for the Journal of the American Chemical Society. Melanie Matchett-Wood is a mathematics professor at Harvard University. Loretta Ross is a reproductive justice and human rights activist, as well as a professor at Smith College. All three are local 2022 MacArthur Genius Grant winners, part of our yearly series, The Genius Next Door. Coming up... The daughter of one of New York's most prominent rabbis has a secret that only her best friend knows. Plus, a successful food blogger dreams of her own Jewish food show. Both of them are temporarily stymied by the reappearance of young loves gone wrong. Their stories are the heart of two new romance novels set during Hanukkah, the annual Festival of Lights. Romance novelists Stacey Agdern and Jean Meltzer are the authors of Love and Latkes and The Matzo Ball, our December selections for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Is there a more perfect setting for romance novels than the holidays? All those imagined snowfalls, flirty looks over cups of hot chocolate, fierce and independent women saving the spirit of the Christmas season. But these days, the romance is just as likely to be a celebration of the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. 
same snowfall with the flirty looks happening over a plate of arugula pastries. Romance authors Stacey Agdern and Jean Melter have both set their charming tales of enemies to friends during Hanukkah. Love and Lotkes and the Matzah Ball are our December selections for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Stacey Agdern is the author of three Hanukkah romance novels. Her latest is Love and Lotkes. The former award-winning bookseller has both reviewed and given talks on the romance genre. She also writes a romance hockey stories or stories for an anthology series called Connected Stories and has written for HEA, Happily Ever After, USA Today's online romance blog and Romantic Times magazine. Welcome, Stacy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to have you. Jean Meltzer is the author of two romances. The Matzah Ball is her first. She studied dramatic writing at New York University's Tisch School. The Emmy Award-winning former TV writer spent five years in rabbinical school before she started writing romance novels. The Matzah Ball will soon be made into a movie. Hi, Jean. I am so excited to be here. Well, I am too. I'm just uh, thrilled. So the romances are set during the time of Hanukkah, which is a Jewish eight-day wintertime festival of lights, so-called for the victory of a small group of Jews called Maccabees who defeated a great army and reclaimed the temple in Jerusalem. They had just enough oil for one night, but the miracle was that it lasted for eight Hanukkah is celebrated with a menorah lighting, special prayers, and fried foods. Really what I want to know is why Hanukkah? Why did you decide to uh, write romances about the Hanukkah holiday? So I'll start with you, Stacey. Well, I think what it is is that Hanukkah is a minor religious holiday, but it's become in a lot of ways a holiday of American cultural identity. And because of that, there is a lot of space to sort of find these moments within the context of, of, of celebration, of analyzing things, of talking about togetherness, of talking about, you know, the season of light and miracles. Um, and, you know, after this very, very wild time in my life where I was involved in, you know, writing these very intensely political romances, I, it was very easy for me to come back to to Hanukkah as something that I found a great deal of joy in, and also after watching a great number of Hanukkah, you know, Hallmark Christmas movies and wondering, what if? Jean, same question to you. Why were you inspired to write a novel about, a romance novel about Hanukkah? So very simple. I have always been a nice Jewish girl who absolutely loves Christmas. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, I came from what we call a very machmir or religious home, which meant there was no Christmas allowed of any kind. No tinsel, no songs, no lights. And so for me, as someone who's always had sort of this conflicting, you know, I love being Jewish. I obviously went to rabbinical school, but I love the lights of Christmas. I love the music. I would go into like the bookstore Target every year. I would look for a sort of a Hanukkah romance, something that would, you know, be my identity on the table. And there was never, ever uh, a Hanukkah romance. And so I could simply envision it, this book of blue and white in a sea of red and green. And so I sat down to write that book. Hmm. So both of you have mentioned uh, Hallmark and um, to some 
degree also, lifetime influence uh, in the area of holiday movies. Uh, this is a clip from the trailer of Mistletoe and Menorahs, which came out in 2019. It just so happens I throw a small annual holiday party. Why don't you come? I would love to. Brush up on your traditions. We expect everyone to participate. That's the event of the season. Make sure you study up. I don't need to study up. I'm a Christmas boss. But can you light the menorah? What's that now? David didn't invite you to his Christmas party. He invited you to his Hanukkah party. What am I going to do? I know nothing about Hanukkah. Alex is history teacher. Alex loves him. He's smart, knowledgeable, handsome. Samantha, what is your point? And Jewish. Now, I played that because, uh, to Stacy, to your point, they just started sort of expanding what a holiday romance uh, movie can be. And there you have one example of it. Uh, there's another one that came out last year, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But uh, that sort of uh, comes together with both of your uh, being, your uh, getting inspiration to want to write a story that uh, hasn't been out there, and certainly in the romance field. And you did both done great jobs. So I want to have each of you read from uh, a clip, an excerpt from your book. So Stacy, you're up first. This is from Love and Lotkeys. Um, go to page 13. So what do you have this week? A great deal, as long as you just don't decide to enter the Fakakta-Latka competition. What's wrong with the competition? Mocha side picked up a cut of beef. They think it's a big holiday. And making a competition out of latkes is their attempt to turn our nice little holiday into a circus. Abe shrugged. I figure the event is the big thing, you know, not the holiday. And people are in Hollowville next door, and Rivertown needs something for itself. Moshe pulled out his knife and started to cut. What is it, they say? Two wrongs don't make a right? Adding a second circus to the first gives everybody the wrong idea, you know, about the things that mean something to us. What Moshe said made sense. On the other hand, if there was anybody who'd understand his reasons for entering the competition, it would be Moshe, you miss Goldbergs? Moshe put his knife down. Do I miss Goldbergs? I miss selling meat to them. I miss the conversations with Aaron Goldberg when I was debating with my father about whether to take over the store or go to culinary school. I miss having that restaurant there for lunch. I miss what it gave us. Abe blew out a breath, turned away from the desolation he saw on Moshe's face, and steadied himself. So, he managed, despite the sweating hands and nerves, I'm going to try to do the latke competition. If I win, I'm going to use the prize money to fill the space Goldberg's left, somehow. Well then, Moshe replied with a smile, that Fakakta competition would be doing some good. I have faith in this idea of yours. Thank you. Thank me by giving me some of your best pulled beef for post-Abdallah dinner, hmm? Count on it. After he left the shop, Abe sat down on the bench just outside. In the October air, he pulled out his phone and officially signed up. So um, that's my guest, Stacey Agdern, and that's from her book, Love and Latkes. It's a friendships and festivals romance, and it's centered around the Hanukkah holiday. Uh, that's uh, one of the um, uh, main characters, Abe. He's the love interest of Batia. Um, and you've uh, set your story at a time when a small town is having a festival about latkes. And in that exchange, we get to hear what you said earlier, underscored, which is that Hanukkah is actually not a, a big holiday in the Jewish community, but culturally it's become large. Exactly. 
Um, you know, and the, the thing is, like, because of that, there's so many different ways to look at it, so many different people have different feelings about why. Um, personally, I am the gif of Amy Poehler with the light up Hanukkah sweater, but not everybody feels that way. Not everybody feels that, you know, Hanukkah is, should be this moment when we have other holidays. But for me and so many others, Hanukkah is absolutely that holiday where as times get difficult, it is so very easy to stand up and say, I celebrate Hanukkah, you know, to wear um, menorahs, to find dreidels, to, to sort of be that person, but also um, engaging yourself and diving into this deep concept of Jewish joy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, well, Jane, uh, I want you uh, to read um, an excerpt as well from your book, The Matzah Ball. Your characters are Rachel and uh, Jacob, and you've set the scene as you've described um, yourself. It's really inspired by your own life. Your character um, is secretly, I'm not giving away anything more than this, uh, a best-selling author of Christmas romance novels, and nobody knows except her best friend. So I'd love you to read from page 19. But seriously, Rachel, you're the best-selling author of over 20 Christmas romance novels. You have four Christmas movies on television, and nobody in the world even knows about it. Not your readers, not your fans, not your parents. I mean, I'm all for keeping folks in the dark about one's personal life, but don't you think it's time to come out of the Christmas closet? Or in your case, the Christmas office? Silence permeated the room. Rachel wanted to tell people the truth about what she did for a living, but coming out wasn't that easy. She couldn't just stand up on the bima like Mickey had done at his bar mitzvah all those years prior and tell everyone the truth. Fifth grade, Rachel finally said aloud. What about fifth grade? My mother caught me putting up a construction paper Christmas tree in my room. Do you know what she did, Mickey? Do you know how my sweet and loving Ema responded to the sight of a green construction paper tree taped up to the wall? She tore the whole thing down, ripped it to shreds, pointed her finger in my face and said, we do not celebrate Christmas in this house. Just like that. No debate, no questions. What do you think my mother will do when she finds out I'm really Margot Cross, best-selling author of over 20 Christmas romances? Mickey considered her story. That was 20 years ago, Rachel. You were just a little kid. Even my mothers would stomp into my public school every once in a while and demand to know why we were singing Oh Holy Night. Now they couldn't care less what I'm singing. Things change. Things change for you, Rachel reminded him. My father is still Rabbi Aaron Goldblatt. And that's my guest, Jean Meltzer. She's reading from her romance novel uh, set during the time of Hanukkah called The Matzah Ball. Um, here's the thing that I appreciate about both of your books, and uh, let me say that this is something I've noted from other authors I've interviewed who speak different languages, and in a certain way you're speaking a different language in telling these stories. You put the expressions in, um, some of the, uh, the, the traditional wording, all of that, and not all the time explain what it is. It's up to the reader to gather the context and figure it out. Now, I personally love that, and I ask all my authors if that's something they're doing deliberately to sort of, you know, wake us up as readers and make us pay attention to what you have on the page. Jean, was that deliberate for you? 
You know, when I sat down to write the matzo ball, I knew I, I wanted it to reach a broad audience. And a broad audience meant everything from non-Jews to secular Jews to Jews who were very observant or what we would call from and from adjacent. And so in order to do that, you know, as someone who comes from a more religious background myself, um, I would often read books uh, that were Jewish, but didn't necessarily speak to my Jewish experience. And so for me, in order to create a book that spoke to more of a from and from adjacent experience, that religious experience, I did feel it was necessary to use certain terms, use certain language, uh, to, to make jokes that someone from a from community would understand. And the book has resonated across cultures. And I think it's because we are becoming a more diverse, open, and aware society. And I think books like mine and Stacy's are helping with that. Stacy, same question to you. Did you do that deliberately? Um, I did. I absolutely did. Um, I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, definitely I agree with Jean in terms of experience, but also like, you know, being around romance and publishing in general, there have been tons of conversations about authentic language and telling authentic stories and language is genuinely a part of that. If I'd ever had any worries or doubts about, you know, including unitalicized Yiddish in my books or bits of Hebrew, that would have, that obliterated all of them. Um, because I think it's important, you know, when you're telling that story, you know, you don't want that border between yourself and the reader. You don't want the, the border between characters and the reader. And when you do, when, when you have those italics, it creates that, that border. Mm -hmm. Well, you can learn a lot, um, depending on where you come from in the audience, as Jean was saying. I have to say, one of my favorite things I've learned, because I did not know this, Fried foods are a tradition. <laughs> I am a new Hanukkah embracer because of the fried yep. foods. Um, and that is that was so exciting to me. I, I didn't put that together with the latkes that are, of course, fried and other foods uh, that you mentioned uh, in the book. But I was delighted, and I'm sure others will be, too. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. If you're just tuning in, I'm Callie Crossley. And I'm speaking with Stacey Agdern, author of Love and Latkes, and Jean Meltzer, author of The Matzo Ball. The Hanukkah romance novels are our December selections for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. Here's what both of your books do as well that I uh, definitely appreciate it. There is, um, as Jean was speaking about a diversity in the Jewish community of, you know, um, and we saw all levels of it, uh, from friends of the main characters um, to people and how they practice their faith. And it was sort of all honored uh, in the friend group. Talk about that, because I can see that that was quite uh, deliberate on your part as well. For me, I mean, it, it closely resembles, again, my life experience. The Matzo Ball is a book that's very much based around my life experience, I did wind up in rabbinical school, but I actually began as what I would call a secular Jew, meaning I went to public school, I was in a conservadox home, which is somewhere in the middle, but I, there were, before I became more observant, there were many Jewish holidays I worked and, and things, you know, I have moved in many Jewish circles. Um, the one thing I will say is that I love my Jewish community. We are varied. We have all sorts of different opinions, beliefs, uh, backgrounds. Um, and for me, when I sat down to write this book, I took all those 
bits and pieces of my past, the people I love, my community, my family. And I put all of that love into this book, The Matzah Ball. Um, and it just really reflects, reflects the people I've met, everyone from Jacob to Shmuel to Mickey. Um, those are real. Uh, to Toby, of course, the Holocaust survivor, those are all uh, models of sort of real people who exist in my life. Same uh, question to you, uh, Stacy. Building community, part of this? Absolutely. Um, so Love and Lockers is the third in a series of the Friendships and Festivals books. Um, each of the different books represent a different aspect of community that I've been with or involved in. Uh, Love and Lockers um, is a story that deals with community and also like the bond that you have with your hometown. It's about family, but also about what happens when you come back. And that's definitely an experience that I've had for sure. Um, coming back to, to my hometown after years of, of going to university and school. Um, but Jewish-wise, um, each of the books, I grew up in a, in a household that is split between a reformative household, we'll say. Um, my mom is reform, my dad is conservative. I grew up more reform, um, sort of in the middle of the road of that sort of situation. But I also felt it was important to sort of demonstrate the different shades of Judaism that I've seen as well. Community is a theme that I've tried to tie all three books in the series to. Hmm. So I'm curious uh, about the response uh, you're getting. Um, and does it feel differently than it than maybe even five, six years ago, where people are thirsty, um, even if they're not Jewish, to have different experiences in reading uh, a romance like this? Um, and, you know, maybe self-affirming, as you've have said, as both of you have said it at the outset. Uh, so, Stacey, what, what kind of response are you getting to your now series of Hanukkah romance novels? It's both a surprise and excitement. And I think the best way to explain it is the following. Um, in Miracles and Menorahs, um, I wrote this little bit of a drink. Um, because it's tiny little, you know, bit of a, a dream of mine to walk into a, a store and order, you know, a Hanukkah-based holiday drink that has never happened before. And so I had that happen in Miracles and Menorahs. I create, you know, mentally created a Susanna latte. To this day, I see photos of people who have gone into their local Starbucks and created an order or a Sifani latte. And for some strange reason, every time I see that, it makes me cry. Wow. Jean, what about you? So um, a lot of people have compared the matzo ball to my big fat Greek wedding, mm -hmm. meaning that you didn't have to be Greek to feel part of that community. Um, and I'm very pleased to say that as of last week, I am an international bestseller. I hit the bestselling list on Sweden, a country that only has 15,000 Jews. So I think we're living in this amazing time where books like mine, which would not have been published um, 10 years ago, not just because they are really in this very Jewish world, but because they also uh, intersect with chronic illness, um, that we're seeing these books really take off and get movie deals and become bestsellers. Um, and I think it's because all of our traditions have something valuable to offer, some wisdom. And our job as authors is to showcase the best of our communities. Mm. So what do you want uh, 
readers to take away, whoever they may be. I'll start with you, Stacey. I want them to enjoy the books. I want them to have minutes where they can pick up my book and let the world go away. Because in a lot of cases, that's what I was doing when I was writing them. I also want them to be happy. I want them, want my readers to enjoy themselves as they're reading and take a sense of joy away. But I also want people to be able to see themselves. Jane? In Jewish exegetical okay. tradition, we have something called Peshat and Drash. Peshat would be the simple layer of a book, and Drash would be the deeper meaning. If you read my book and you have a rip-roaring great time, and you just walk away with that Peshat meaning, that's great. As an author, I'm super happy. That's my job, writing a holiday romance rom-com to give you a great time. But if you walk away from the book and you get that drosh, those deeper layers, um, if if I make you cry, if I make you feel, if you learn something about Judaism, if uh, you learn something about our history, then for me, uh, as an author, that's the good stuff. Well, both books are the good stuff. So (laughs) I thank both of you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is, this is amazing. Stacey Agdern is the author of Love and Latkes, the latest of her three Hanukkah romance novels. Jean Meltzer is the author of The Matzah Ball, the first of her two romances. Both books are available online and in bookstores now. Love and Latkes and The Matzah Ball are our December selections for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. We're going out on Oh Hanukkah by the group The Maccabees. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Kelly Wessinger and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Catherine Hurley. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Let's have a party. We'll